Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You're about to hear an interview with Aaron Walker, and it's a little bit different because typically when we interview people on Built to Sell Radio, it is someone who has sold a business recently. And in Aaron's case, he actually sold his business quite some time ago. And in the interview, we talk about that process, but it's really what happened after he sold his company that I think is instructive and important for you to hear. Uh, it's his experience going through the sale and obviously some uh, some things that he didn't expect after the sale that uh shaped the rest of his life. He's also got a couple of tools that uh, may be helpful for you that he mentions at the end of the interview. I hope you enjoy this interview with Aaron Walker. Aaron, thanks for joining. Yeah, John, glad to be on your show today. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, you sold a business at the ripe old age of 27 uh, <laughs> to, a Fortune, yeah, to a Fortune 500 company in Cash America. Can you just tell us a little bit about that story? How did you start and, and how did you get to sell this business to such a big company? Sure. I was 13 years old, went to work for a local pawn shop in Nashville, Tennessee, and at 15, fell in love with the business, decided I would pursue that, went to summer school, night school for two years, got out of high school at the end of the 10th grade, met two partners, had a lot of money. We opened our first store at 18 years old. We decided uh, to delay gratification, not get the big house and all the cars because the business did pretty well right out of the gate. We reinvested into a second store at 21 years old. At 25, I bought my third store. At 26, I opened my fourth store. And then at the ripe old age, as you put it, 27, Cash America discovered me here in Nashville. They were growing through acquisition. They're based in Fort Worth, Texas. And John, quite honestly, they just made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So that's how it happened. So a pawn shop, I think of a pawn shop as a place you go, uh, you're down on your luck, you have a Rolex your daddy gave you and you, you know, you, you take it, you know, for, a, for an advance on, on some cash. Am I getting the business model right? I've never used a pawn shop. So give me, am I getting it yeah, basically right? Of course, everybody thinks of the guy in the visor smoking the cigar yeah. in the corner. You know, it was nothing like that. Our stores were five and 10,000 square feet. We had seven to 15 employees in a store. I mean, we had the nicest jewelry selection in Middle Tennessee. They were very upscale stores. We'd write 100-plus loans a day out of these stores. They were very good stores and very profitable. How did you and learn the business model? Because you don't learn that in school. What, how, how did you learn you know, about it? No, I started at that pawn shop I was just referring to at the ripe old age of 13 and working after school. And I uh, just fell in love with the business and I always wanted to do something well. And so when I turned 15, decided to do it at 18, I said, it's time to go and met the partners. You know, I didn't have any money. I came from a very humble background and I had to seek out the people that uh, invested in this business early on. And I don't know, I just had kind of the foresight to do that. And uh, my mom said, hey, go for it. We haven't had anything in our life and we've very humble beginnings. And so go for it. And that's exactly what I did. So with these partners, you were they operating partners, meaning they no. were in the business day to day? No, they just gave you the no, money. Silent partners. Yeah. We went, they wanted my name on the note. They had the money to open the stores, but we went to the bank. They said, we want your name on the note. And I said, I'm happy to, cause I have nothing to lose. So let's go. <laughs> so we went and borrowed and this was in 1979 and for me at the time, it was a lot of money. We went and borrowed $150,000 and I was responsible for a third of that. We did a third, third, third partnership. They were in the insurance industry. They were the 21st largest insurance property and cash providers in 
uh, Tennessee at the time, and so they had plenty of money. But this was something that I'm not sure they thought was going to be successful, but they were willing to invest in me and uh, went to the bank, signed the note. They gave me a checkbook, had 150000 in it, said, go open it. That's what I did. Hmm. And so how did life progress with these two partners? I mean, was it, how would you describe the relationship you had with them over time? Yeah, there was a lot of lessons learned there. They were great guys. One of them was uh, probably at that time, 30 years my senior. The other one's 20 years my senior. And as time progressed over the course of time, it was a little difficult because our uh, attitude towards business was different. You know, one of them wanted to take more money out than the other one. I obviously didn't want to take any money out at all. I wanted to grow the business. Nothing wrong with either vantage point. It's just that our objectives were different. And so they were great guys and we had great relationships. One of them I eventually sold two of the stores to, and he did with the money what he wanted to. And the other partner and myself kept two of the stores and then Cash America came to town and bought us out. So you actually had two exits out of this business. One you sold to your partners. The other, you, the other two shops you sold to Cash America. I yeah, wonder- well, we we met an impasse. Is the reason is because I didn't fault him for wanting to take the money out. I certainly would want to do the same thing if I were his age, and he certainly didn't fault me. I was young, building my family, wanted to reinvest, and we just simply sat down and said, "Okay, we've." We've met an impasse here, and uh, let's work it out. And so we were both honorable guys, and we sat down and said, you know, you take this, I'll take this, and we'll both be happy. And how did you establish a valuation for the company when dealing with that partnership buyout? Well, there's a multiple times earnings, you know, in most businesses. There's precedence, and there was for our industry as well. And so we just simply sat down and we kept, you know, an ongoing inventory. We did an inventory, and we applied the multiple, and we made the division. And then you went on to sell two other shops to Cash America. Maybe talk a little bit about that. You said you were you were approached it. You weren't looking for the offer, but they came to you. How did how did that? They transpire? came. They came three times. They came to me. We had a store in a shopping strip, and I decided I want to grow to the business. So I went across the street, bought a track of land, tore the building down that was on it, built a new building, very modern, very good looking store. Just got it completed, and Cash America came to town, wanted to be in Tennessee. They weren't in Tennessee at the time. They wanted to be in Nashville. They rode around, looked at the stores, liked ours, and they approached me, said, we want to buy your stores. And I told them it wasn't for sale. I said, I'm 27 years old, you know, and I'm just getting warmed up good. We've only been in business nine years. Just built this new store, and uh, they went away, and they came back in about a month. And they made another approach and they sat in my office and they said, we really would like to be here. We don't want to take the time to establish a new market here. You've got a great store. We want to buy it. I told them the second time it wasn't for sale. They came back 30 or 60 days later and they said, listen, uh, everything's for sale. And I just laughed. And he said, if you were going to sell your business, what would you sell it for? I said, well, it's not for sale. He said, hypothetically. And I just thought for a minute and I said, well, I knew what the evaluation was earlier and I gave him a number and he said, we'll take it. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't know. And he goes, well, we'll take it if hypothetically. And I said, well, I don't want to sell these buildings. He said, oh, that doesn't include your buildings. That's for your business. We just want the business. We'll be your landlord. You be the landlord, we'll be the tenant and we'll lease the buildings back from you. And that put a whole new perspective on it. I said, well, that's a whole new twist. And so I went home, talked to Robin about it. 
Really, Robin, Robin being your wife. Yeah, yeah. Robin and I've been married 35 years now. We got married two weeks out of high school. I've done everything early, so we've been married 35 years now. But I went and I said, it's a great opportunity for us. And quite honestly, looking back, John, I'm not sure it was the right decision. I mean, it gave, it was a little bit of a catalyst that kind of moved me forward and gave me opportunities to do different things. But what happened was is I became very depressed and bored after that process. I even got in the bed in the middle of the day, was taking naps. I gained 50 pounds in 18 months because I had no purpose. I had no reason to get up. There was nothing for me to look forward to. And I'm a high D, you know, on the disc profile, and I'm very active. And I had no reason to do anything. I was playing golf every day, and people would say, oh, I'd like to have such a problem. Well, it really is a problem because you can only do that so much. If you don't have a meaning and values in your life and a purpose and a reason to get up each and every day, you'll get depressed. You'll get bored. I don't care how much money you've got. You've got to have a reason to get out and move the needle. For those who don't know the DISC profile, can you just describe what a high D means and, and give us a sense of that? Yeah, it just means I'm very aggressive. I'm not passive. Uh, that can summarize it the best. It's just I'm very uh, on it. I got the big picture, you know, the details. Sometimes I leave in the dust, but I'm a visionary. You know, I've got the big picture in mind and I'll delegate out a lot of the details. Got it. So we go back to the Cash America deal that you, you give them a number thinking they're never going to take this, but and they surprise you and say, yeah, actually, that's that's fine. Did, the first two times they approached, did they give you a number um, or was it no, just a, a- we never got to that because I told them I wasn't interested. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so the third number, the number, the time, the number you gave them was, how was that valuation on a multiple of EBITDA compared to what you sold to, uh, you know, the other two partners, uh, well, the partner that you, uh, that you sold yeah, to the other two shops? Yeah, it was probably 50% higher than what I'd sold to the other partner or when, when I sold those two businesses out, I just felt like, well, that was the multiple that I used for him. I'm going to increase that by 50%. And they took it, not thinking they would. They already had, at that time, three or 400 stores. So they, they were not a novice. I mean, they, they knew exactly what was going on. And they even said, we wouldn't pay this for these, but they're that good of stores. They were in that good of location. Uh, we had very good stores, brand new building. I mean, it was just a great location. And they said the startup cost for us will, will exceed that. And they just said it's worth it to us to do it, which, you know, that was years ago now, and they're still my tenant. And they've since then paid for the building multiple times uh, over. They're, they're just a fabulous company. And so for all those reasons, it was a good deal. The part that wasn't a good deal, looking back, thinking that I probably, if I'd had trusted advisors and been in a mastermind group like I am now and have been for 20 years, I probably would have done things different. I probably would have brought on uh, a mentee and spent some time, put energy and effort into training him, maybe would still own the business and will have made many times more what I sold it for. So I don't know if I had it to go over if I would have sold it. It was good. It put some money in the bank. It gave me opportunities. But there's a lot to that statement of startups and the energy, the effort, and the money that it takes to do it. And so as you look back now, you think maybe you should have hung on to it and, and built it up. Yeah, I would have just hired somebody that was competent that would have done it the way I would have wanted to. Now, it could have been an absentee owner but yet still be involved with systems in place, accountability in place. Uh, probably it's a great business. I probably could have made a lot more money, but, you know, we do things uh, 
that we may not have done otherwise as time goes by. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's what the show's all about. So I appreciate you sharing. Can we talk a little bit about the negotiation with Cash America itself? Um, so you're, he's literally in your office. The president of Cash America is in your office saying, you know, what would you like to sell your business for? And you throw out a number. He says, we'll take it. Walk me through that conversation up until the check clears in your bank account. I mean, was it 60 days of diligence? But just give us a sense of what that experience was like. Yeah, it was very interesting and quite exhilarating, uh, just to be honest. You know, I didn't dread that process at all. It happened pretty fast. They had a system in place to where they'd done this multiple times. So it wasn't like um, foreign to them. Uh, once we established that, my attorney took the papers that they had a contract already made out. They were ready to go. All they had to do is fill in the blanks, and we evaluated that. One of the places that we reached an impasse was through the non-compete. And looking at that non-compete now, uh, I maybe would have even done it a little bit differently. Uh, what what they asked for, <laughs> it's ridiculous what they asked for, they asked for 50 miles, 25 years. And I'm like, Y'all are smoking something. There's no way I'm going to do that. So there was another business that I knew I might do something with, and I got in my car and I drove down the road, got the distance, and I came back and I said, I'll give you this many years and I'll give you this distance. And they said, there's no way we're going to do that. I said, then there's no way I'm going to sell because I've got to have something to do later. There's something I'm interested in. And, you know, so they came back and they made a counter proposal and I declined. I said, I can't do that. And the deal's off. And so we negotiated for maybe two or three weeks on the non-compete. And finally, I drew a line in the sand. And I said, this is the time frame. This is the distance. And if you don't agree to that, then the deal's off. Well, they really wanted to be in Nashville. And so they came back and they said, we're going to do the deal. Well, it was a couple of years before I did the other project. But uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it had I not negotiated the non-compete. How many years did you give them, I gave them 10 years, three and a half miles. Wow. So in theory, in the 11th year, you could set up shop you know, four miles out of a direct competitor. I could set up shop immediately as long as I was outside of that three and a half miles. Right. But I couldn't set up shop inside of the 10 miles. I mean, the three and a half miles, less than 10 years. Yeah. And so did you ultimately set up a competitive shop You know, after the... Yeah, I bought a store. There was a store, and I didn't do it immediately. I was ready for a break. And so 18 months, two years later, I formed a partnership with the company that I started with when I was 13 years old. And then we were able to share the work week, you know, for 10 years. Then we went through that process. So I worked three days a week. My partner worked the other three days. We did that for 10 years, and we grew that business to about four times the size it was when I went in partners with him. Were there any other deal points that became really sticky other than the, the non-compete? Well, the part that was a little bit uncomfortable, you know, for the first time, there were locks put on the door, two locks at which we both held a key. I couldn't go in without them. They couldn't go in without me. And that took about a week to go through the process to where they do the inventory. They brought a team of people. There was about eight people per store they came in and they inventoried everything. And we had very accurate records and it went very smooth. There was no sense of contention there and there was not a problem. It was just the process of going through it. It's a little awkward during that time because it's like, who owns this? You know, he's, 
It's like, I can't be there by myself and they can't either. And there was a marriage there for about a week that we went through, but it was an exciting time. You know, we went to the attorney's office at the end of the day and we sat there, signed the papers and I waited on the wire transfer and a little bit of a celebration, you know, it's like they're excited to get the stores and I'm celebrating. I got a little money. And so that was a fun process as well. It was really fun. And if you do business correctly and you have correct balance statements and your, you know, your sheets are correct and the accounting is good and the inventory is good, it's really a simple process. Talk to me about inventory because that's a, a confusing one for a lot of our listeners. Whereas, you know, is the business valued on a multiple of EBITDA? What if I have all this enormously expensive and valuable inventory? Maybe walk through how inventory affected your valuation. Well, there was a little bit, I'll have to back up. There was a little bit of discrepancy on a few items that we had. It was like we valued it at this and they valued it at that. And it was just on a few larger ticket items. And quite honestly, we negotiated through that process. They gave a little, I gave a little. I want, you know, I want it to be a good deal for everybody, you know, because I want to do business. They even went further and they said, we will provide you money to open stores and in five years, we'll buy them back from you. And I passed on that deal. And the reason they were willing to do that is because our inventory was so clean and because our business model was run so efficiently. Now I look back and I think, what an idiot, man. I probably should have took them up on that. They're a billion, $800 million company now. And so they've done well there in, I don't know how many countries, three or four different countries. I've got about 1,100 stores. But they are a first-class run company. Dan Feehan is the president of the company. Sam Rizzo was the CFO of the company at that time, and I even stay in contact with them now. Uh, I haven't seen Dan in a number of years. We had dinner not too long ago together. Uh, they're just a great company. And I think we developed the relationship because – I was willing to negotiate because I was willing to give and take, and we just wanted it good for both of us. To go back, though, Aaron, about this question around inventory, how did it affect the value of the business? Because were, were you were you valuing the business on a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple? No, of, it uh, wasn't. It was on a multiple of loan dollars that were out for sale, and then dollar for dollar on the inventory. Got there it. Was a, mm -hmm. And was that the standard way that 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 uh, pawn that's shops the way, were, were? That's the way they were bought. Got it. Okay. Excellent. That's that's helpful. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. No, no, that's for sure helpful for sure. So we, you have this moment, you see the wire transfer comes in and you think, hey, this is great. I've got some cash in my jeans. Um, take us through this period of depression you went through because that's, uh, again, a lot of our listeners haven't gone through the process, but will go through the process pretty soon. So it's interesting for hearing your thoughts around that? Well, the problem, no one told me that I better have something in place to replace it, whatever that is, whether it's travel, whether it's starting a new venture, whether it's another buyout, you just can't sit at home if you're healthy and do nothing. And so where I was confused, I thought I was going to fish every day and play golf and go hunting and spend time with Robin and the kids and we even packed up a friend of mine owns a house in Naples, Florida. We said, we're going to spend the summer down there. This first summer, you know, after we sold the business, we lasted three weeks in Naples, Florida. It's because I had nothing to do. And I'm so used to going from 13 years old to 27 years old. And I'm used to making deals. I'm used to making it happen. I'm all about customer service. I like the art of the deal, you know, and now boom, I'm sitting on the couch and I don't have to do anything. 
And yeah, that sounds good. And it was good from a financial perspective, but that's just not all there is in life. Just the money is a portion of it. And we've got to have purpose. And I learned through this process that I had been successful, but not necessarily significant. Everything was about me. And now I'm like, what do I do now? So I've chosen now to look outward and live a life of significance, not just successful. So, so what does that mean to you? What, what, is it, what is the difference between being successful and significant? Well, successful, you know, to all of us is we want to have a sense of financial freedom and stability, right? We all want that no matter what. But I also wanted to have an engaging family and I wanted to have meaningful relationships. So for me, that is success. I wanted to have a clear conscience. I wanted to know that I did every deal correctly. I told you I gained 50 pounds. And so then success for me became getting myself back in shape, losing the weight. I wanted to learn how to be content without being complacent. And you can be content, see, because happiness is a choice, not a trait. And we choose to be happy in the present situation we're in, or we choose not to be happy. And I wanted to learn to move the needle. I wanted to go forward but I, w- I wanted to be content, but not complacent. Then I wanted to have a clear sense of direction. I wanted to know where I was going from now on. Now I'm very clear on where I'm heading. I love to dream and I love to establish goals, right? Because if you don't do that, and I was at that point at 27, my dreams were over. I had accomplished what I thought was significant. It was successful, but it wasn't necessarily significant. And then for me, you know, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian, so I wanted to have a trust and a higher power. I wanted to know that it wasn't just about me. I wanted to have meaning and purpose. I wanted to be able to get out of the bed and say, this is the reason. And then at the end of the day, I said, if I'm going to be successful at the end of my life, I want people to look back and say, that was a wise man, right? Significance is way different. When you start thinking about significance in your life, that's about meeting the needs of others. It's about helping others when they can't repay you, right? Our motives a lot of the times are to do things for people because they're going to do something back for us. But then I started, in my mind, developing ways that I could help other people that couldn't repay me. It sounds was, it sounds kind of hippy dippy and socialist. I mean, are we? Did you go from being a, a you know a capitalist from the age of eighteen no. to twenty seven, and now a uh, no? Uh, you know, but you can do both. Okay, take me through that. Okay, well, you can be significant and successful. Why is it all got to be about you? See, we can do both. We can help people. We can come to the aid of others when it's maybe not convenient for you. Maybe it's like we set aside. We maybe delay our gratification and we provide more above and beyond the expected amount or the minimal requirements for some, and we give them more. It's like now I'm thinking of you more than I'm thinking about me. And then I wanted to learn to give out of obedience rather than out of compulsion, right? I didn't want to think, well, I should do this. I wanted to do it because it was the right thing to do from a humanitarian standpoint. I wanted to help people because I wanted them to be successful. Out of that, the reciprocity comes. If you help enough people be successful, they want to help you rather than how much can I get. See, for me, relationships are about what I bring, not what I get, right? Because then it's selfish. It's all about me at that point. And I wanted to delay personal gratification for the greater good. It's like 
okay, and so I got a big house, nice house on the hill, you know, 185 trees and a thousand foot driveway with a gate and boats and toy. I got all that vacation home. I got a place in Destin on the beach. I got all that stuff. Is really? I mean, is it, does the whole world revolve around me? What about maybe giving some scholarships? What about helping these kids that don't have any water? What about, you know, it's not anything about being a capitalist or, you know, it's, it's about doing the right thing. I'm successful financially, but I want to be able to give and help and pour into others. And see, the Gary Vanderchuk mentality is, you know, jab, 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 right hook. Let's give, let's give, let's give. Well, now if you need something, you've got the permission to ask. And so I just wanted to develop within me the foresight to invest in long-term matters that would impact generations to come. See, my, my vision went beyond myself. And you've developed some tools for our listeners to help us kind of think these things through, this significance versus sure. successful. Give us a sense of, of what those are, if you could, and where, where yeah. we can get them. Yeah, sure. There's, it's called a personal assessment. I wrote this a while back, and it's to help you look inside. It's saying, am I that person that wants to be successful, significant? What is it about me? What are the relationships I'm looking for? What is it about uh, my career, my faith, my family? What are the things that are important to me? Most people, John, live a life of being reactive, not proactive. I've developed a form called, what do I want? It's just where you sit on the front porch with your mate and you say, hey, what do we want our life to look like? I don't care about it looking like Aaron's or John's. What do we want to do? So live intentionally and answer these 30 questions and it helps you understand a life that you want to live. And then steps to a productive day. I start you out early in the morning and I walk you through a process that you will have a very methodical day. You'll be very productive. You'll get things accomplished. And as a result of that, you'll be successful. I built a landing page called viewfromthetop.com forward slash built to sell. And if you'll go there, uh, I'll make them for free. You can have them. I don't want the money. You just get them, use them. Hopefully, it'll be a catalyst to help you. Well, that's a very generous offer. Thank you so much, Aaron. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. We're Just give us a sense before we close. Where do people uh, get get in touch with you if, if we want to reach you? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, viewfromthetop.com. Everything's there. My email, Twitter, Facebook, it's all there. Viewfromthetop.com. Aaron Walker, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.